0: Thank you, Brother Jacob, Brother Jesse, and everyone else who's helping with this service. Thank you so much. Another good morning to you. In the Bible, what we have, there are a number of commandments that God gives us that are ultimate, that are never changing, and that in, every, in any context, Christians must obey. There are a number of these commandments. One of them is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. There is never a circumstance in this world or in the next where Christians should not obey that commandment. Some commandments found in Scripture are absolute and are always binding. Now, there are other commandments, though, that there's some wiggle room with. Let me give you an example. Psalm 37.8 says this. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Psalm 37.8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Now that's quite clear. This biblical instruction found in the Psalms, God is telling us through it that we should not... Become angry. And there are a number of passages you could add to this that support the idea that the Bible teaches us to not be angry. However, with anger, there is other biblical instruction that in some situations, anger is the proper response. So some commandments are absolute, some commandments are always binding. We can never forsake certain commandments like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. However, there are other commandments that the Bible teaches a differing approach to. Sometimes with anger, you'll find in the scriptures, the Bible says to not be angry. And in other situations, the Bible encourages anger. And this morning, we're going to examine that category of acceptable anger. That's the topic that we're going to look at this morning. As detailed by the title of my sermon, Righteous Anger, we're going to be dealing this morning with what Paul says in Philippians 3, 1-2, and how it pertains to righteous anger. There's sometimes, there's some contexts there are some situations in the life of a Christian in which anger is our proper response. So that's the introduction. Let's go ahead and turn to Philippians 3, 1 through 2. What we're going to see this morning, we're going to see Paul get angry. Paul gets angry in our passage. Paul doesn't do this that often. If you read all of his epistles, this passage in Philippians in some passages in Galatians, we encounter Paul getting angry. But this doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it's very important, dear Christian, that we seek to understand what it is that God is teaching us through this. Philippians 3 1 through 2. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Two points for you this morning. The first point is this, Paul's righteous anger. Paul's righteous anger. That's our first point this morning. Paul's righteous anger. Now to understand what Paul is doing here, we're just going to walk through this passage and explain it portion by portion. First off, you have this word finally. Finally, Paul says finally. Now with the word finally, it seems as if Paul is concluding what he's saying in the letter. But as we know, Paul continues his discussion for two more chapters. We're at the halfway point. Now finally can also be understood as "further." Further, So Paul, I take with, with this inclusion of the word. Finally, Paul is progressing his discussion in the book of Philippians. Paul is transitioning here to a new topic. And that new topic will concern us from verse 1, 3-1, to the end of verse 11. And in this new section, Paul is going to begin discussing what a false sense of salvation looks like. As what brother Jacob alluded to in his prayer this morning. And what a correct sense of salvation looks like. That's where Paul is going to take us. So he's transitioning, he's pivoting his discussion. And he's moving into a different area, of t- a different topic in this portion. And notice how Paul says here in verse one, 3, 1 rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's, it's hard to understand what Paul is doing with this brief commandment. It's very brief. But what I take Paul is doing here is he's beginning to introduce what salvation looks like. Paul is going to discuss, if you look at 3.7, but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What Paul is saying in seven and 3.8 is he's essentially saying, rejoice in the Lord. Salvation, true salvation, is when people do not rejoice in themselves or in their circumstances. The ever-changing idea of circumstances, but when Christians rejoice in the Lord. So Paul is giving us a foretaste of where he's going with this instruction to rejoice in the Lord. And then in 3.1, Paul says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Now, we do not know if Paul had written a previous letter to the Philippians. It almost seems as if the way Paul phrases what he says here in verse 1, it's almost as if he has written these same things to them before, before this letter here. Now, we don't know if there was a previous letter or if there was previous discussion that Paul had with the Philippians about this, about this topic of false salvation and correct salvation. But what Paul is saying here is he's removing from them their apology for their need to be told these same things. Sometimes if you have to tell someone over and over again, you might respond, Well, didn't you hear me the first time? Have you ever said that, parents of young children? I know I haven't. Just just joking. That's what Paul is saying here. He is telling the Philippians that he doesn't, it, it doesn't bother him to have to repeat himself. Paul is not bothered that he has to talk about these same matters again. And then he says, Actually, it's of no trouble to me, and it is, quote, look here at the end of verse 1, safe for you. So Paul introduces here this notion of Safety. What Paul is saying is that it is important for Paul to have to repeat himself again in order for the Philippians to be safe. Another way to understand this word safe is a safeguard. For Paul to remind the Philippians again is a safeguard for them. Now, why do the Philippians need to be safe? Safety assumes danger. For Paul to say, it is a safeguard for me to write to you again, assumes some type of problem, some type of danger. And the danger is false teaching. Paul, this is the first instance in the letter of Philippians that he introduces this notion of false teaching. Paul had concern for the Philippians, and that concern revolved around the issue of false teaching. There were people in the Philippian context, the the context in Philippi, who were engaging in false teaching. And this false teaching, Paul touches upon, or begins discussing, he discusses these false teachers in verse 2. Paul gives them three names here. Paul refers to them, he says, look out for the dogs Look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This word, look out, can also be understood as beware of. The Philippians need to be on guard against this group of people who Paul is describing. Now, who is this group? A very important question to ask and answer. This group, Paul does not give a label to here in Philippians, Paul does not tell us explicitly who these people are. The Philippians knew who they were, so Paul needed no reason to describe who exactly they were. And we get a brief taste, a brief description of what it is that they do based upon the final label that Paul gives to them. Look right at the end of verse 2. These people... This group of false teachers that Paul is telling the Philippians to be aware of, to look out for, to watch out for, they, quote, mutilate the flesh. This is a very graphic description, very graphic. This type of mutilation that Paul is saying that they engage in is very graphic. It's with reference to a specific body part. Paul is saying here that these false teachers mutilate the body. Now, if you look at the beginning of verse 3, Paul says, for we are the circumcision. The way you put together mutilate the flesh and the way you put together what Paul says about we are the circumcision is this group that Paul is describing what they teach is that in order for Gentiles to be saved, Gentiles must engage in circumcision. In order to be saved in early Christianity, in this very beginning stages of the church, these false teachers, who other, what, that these false teachers are labeled in other passages as Judaizers, these Judaizers, what they teach is that Christians must obey the Old Testament law. Specifically, specifically, Gentile men must be circumcised. And you notice how Paul interprets this here very harshly. He calls them mutilators. And Paul's rhetoric in Galatians 5 is even stronger than what he says here. Paul says this in Galatians 5.12. I wish those who unsettle you, this is describing the same group that Paul is dealing with here in Philippians. Paul touches upon the Judaizers in Galatians, in the book of Galatians and in the book of Philippians. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish that those who unsettle you would uh, emasculate themselves. Now I'm going to leave it up to you to fill in the blanks about what Paul is saying here. This is very, very, very strong rhetoric. Paul is very angry here. Paul has very harsh things to say about these false teachers. He refers to them as mutilators. These Judaizers do not circumcise. They mutilate the flesh. And then taking verse 2, uh, excuse me, Philippians 3-2 backwards, starting with mutilators and then moving on to the title that Paul gives before that, he refers to them as evildoers. Beware of the evildoers, Philippians. These Judaizers, they mutilate the flesh and also they engage in evil works. Now, I want you to notice that Paul does not say here, well, you know, they believe what they believe. No one's really Right. <laughs> Paul calls them evil. These people Paul directly describes as those who do evil. And then Paul calls them, the beginning of verse 2, dogs. They are dogs. Now I take a little offense to this. I, I am a dog person. I wish Paul would have said, beware of the cats. But he didn't. I am a dog person. And in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to understand how the first century understood dogs. Dogs being man's best friend is a very recent phenomenon. It's, it's even in America, this is not shared all across the world. Dogs are, have not been traditionally regarded as man's best friends. Dogs have traditionally not been held as personal pets. In the first century... What dogs would do is dogs were wild. People, certain people, certain rich people might have a guard dog or some type of protection dog, but the over and abundance of dogs in the first century were wild. They would go around town and go to the trash dump and eat in the trash dump, and then you might be walking around town and you encounter a dog who is vicious, a dog who is dangerous, Whenever we lived in Dallas, Catherine was out running one time and had a close interaction with a dog in which she was almost attacked. Dogs can be dangerous. And if they feed on trash, they're filthy. Paul's description here carries a lot of weight in the first century that we miss now. This is a very derogatory word. Paul is saying here that the Judaizers are both filthy and dangerous, they bite. And their bite can be lethal. Their bite can kill you. Paul is very strong here. Very harsh. But the harshness, dear friend, relates to what it is that Judaizers are teaching. In this life, there are many people, there are many types of doctrines that lead people astray. And even more specifically there are some people and doctrines that lead people to everlasting punishment. And the language here is fitting for the problem. It is okay to be righteously angry about some certain issues and ideas. And we see Paul doing that here. Now what Paul does here is not just what Paul did the Bible is not just a book of history that describes past events there's relevance here for us what Paul's example is for us it teaches us certain important truths and those truths are very essential for the Christian life so the first point I'm I'm transitioning here to my second point the first point was Paul's righteous anger the second point is this our righteous anger. Paul's example is for us. The Bible was written, Philippians was written to the Philippians, but it's written for us. So there are are lessons that we need to learn here. And as I dive into this notion of righteous anger, where I want to begin for us, our righteous anger, there are two problems that we want to avoid here. Brother Jacob mentioned two ditches of false teaching. I like that. There are two ditches of righteous anger that we do not want to fall into. Two errors, two problems. And the first problem is this. Over anger. The first problem that, that some Christians run into with this notion of righteous anger is becoming too angry too often. Some Christians get angry about everything, and that is a certain pattern that we want to avoid. And to illumine this point, I want you to see in Philippians how Paul deals with disagreement in Philippi. I found four different disagreements that Paul has in in this letter to the Philippians, and in only one of those disagreements does Paul get angry. Look with me. At Philippians 1.15. Let's start there. Philippians 1.15. Some of these passages we've already touched on. So I hope that you remember what these passage how I taught these passages. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim excuse me, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, claimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul here is talking about there is this group in Philippi in the early church who are seeking to harm Paul and they're preaching the gospel to spite Paul, to harm him. We don't know the specifics of how them preaching would harm him but we know based upon verse 17 there are those who are preaching the gospel to quote afflict me in my imprisonment does Paul refer to these people as dogs no how does Paul respond here verse 18 it doesn't matter. What then? So what? So what if these people are doing this? Paul has no harsh words here. Now that doesn't mean that what these people are doing is okay. But Paul ultimately doesn't care. So Paul has no harsh response here. Here's a disagreement that Paul had. But you notice the difference of rhetoric from three two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for the mutilators. And then one eighteen. So what? Let them do what they do. Paul does not respond with righteous anger in Philippians one eighteen. Now look at Philippians 3.15. Another disagreement. Here's another disagreement that Paul has that he mentions. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. I've covered this passage as well. What Paul is teaching here is he's saying, let the mature in Christ think a certain way. It doesn't really matter at this point to describe what that pattern of thinking is. Paul is just saying, the way I want us to interpret this passage, is Paul is saying, let the mature think like this. And then Paul has this concession. And that concession is, if any of you disagree, if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Does Paul call these people who might disagree with him about what he's saying, does he call them dogs? No. This is no big deal. There is no need for Paul to respond here in 3.15 with righteous anger. 3.2 is unique. Last passage. Go to 4-2 4-2 4-2 4-2 Philippians 4-2 another disagreement there's this problem I've touched on this passage before there's a problem in the Philippian church with two women and these two women their names are Eudia and Syntyche I entreat this is what Paul says to these, these women I entreat Yudian and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. He's calling on these women to agree, to agree with one another. Paul disagrees with how these women are handling this controversy. We don't know the specifics, and for our purposes, it doesn't matter. These women are disagreeing with one another. And Paul disagrees with their disagreement. He thinks that they need to move on. Does Paul call these women dogs? No. Paul has a very encouraging tone here. He loves these women. They've served alongside of him in the work of the gospel. His heart is for them. He disagrees, though, with how they're handling this dispute. And he has an exhortation for them. They need to get past this. But the way Paul deals with them is remarkably different than how he deals with these false teachers. And the point of all of these comparisons, the reason why I'm going through all of these passages, is I want us to see that Paul does not respond with righteous anger to every Disagreement he has with the Christians in Philippi. Paul is very specific about how he responds with righteous anger. There are four examples of disagreement. And in only one of those occasions, Paul gets hot and heavy. In only one occasion does he refer to this, a group who he disagrees with with righteous anger. And what that means for us is this, dear Christian. There are some times in this life, and I will specify later when we should do this. There are some times in this life whenever we need to have righteous anger. But there are also many times whenever we shouldn't. And there are some Christians who get angry about every disagreement. And dear friends, I want us to see Paul's example here. We should get angry sometimes. But if we get angry about everything, it's not righteous anger, it's just anger. And that is a sin. We have to avoid getting angry about everything. If you have a disagreement with someone, and it's really minor, and you're getting angry you're not following Paul's example here. You're not obeying Christ in your life. There are many issues, dear friend, that we should not get angry about. And specifically for our context, specifically for us, as we get towards November 2020, and as this COVID thing continues on, politics will continue to be a matter that we discuss. And politics matter. Politics are important. It is important for Christians to be politically informed. However, some Christians, all they think about and all they talk about and all they get angry about is federal spending. Is the Second Amendment being pushed back against? And I'm not saying don't be upset about those things. And I'm not saying don't have convictions about those things. However, if you get more heated about the Second Amendment than you do about millions of people dying without hearing the name of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, your convictions are misguided. We should have righteous anger, dear friend but it is important that we place that righteous anger in the proper spot. And many things that take up our time, that take up our thinking, that take up our attention, as Christians, they don't ultimately matter. The gospel matters. That is what matters. When compared to that, Many things fall by the wayside. Dear friend, get angry, but only about the right type of things. The second danger the first danger was over anger. That was the first ditch that we don't want to steer our, our Christian discipleship into. But there's another ditch. And you might imagine what this ditch is. If the first one is over anger, the second one is under anger. Under anger, turn with me to—excuse me—turn with me to Ephesians four twenty-six. Ephesians four twenty-six. It should be just a couple pages to the left of where you're at in Philippians. Ephesians four twenty-six. Dear friends, some Christians, some Christians, whom I love, who are a part of my life, who are in my family. Some dear Christians are overly forbearing. If you go and step on their shoe, they'll tell you, Oh, I'm sorry, it's my fault, right? And these dear Christians are wonderful. They're always forgiving, they're always forbearing, they're always willing to give you the benefit of the doubt and other people the benefit of the doubt. They are compassionate and empathetic, and they don't they never complain. They never complain. They never lead on to that they're doing poorly or that they're struggling. They're dear Christians. They're, they're very much a model of godliness. However, there is a tendency with these Christians, with these dear brother and sisters, to not get angry when they should. Look with me in Ephesians 4:26. I want all of us to look here. This is very important. So what I got from Philippians 3.2 was an example of Paul, Paul getting angry. Now you might say to me, well, simply because Paul got angry doesn't mean that we necessarily must get angry. Fair enough. But the point is hammered home with this passage in Ephesians 4.26. What are the first two words? Be angry. Dear friend, this in Greek This is an imperative. An imperative is a command. Paul is saying here, get angry. Be angry. Now he has this little qualifier, and do not sin. Paul is telling the Ephesians here, he's telling us. He's telling us through his example in Philippians 3.2. There are some situations in life where Christians, the correct response is to get mad, is to be angry. And dear friend, if you are one of those people who is very empathetic, who is very forbearing, who is always willing to give other people the benefit of doubt, no matter what they do, Dear friend, I think what the Lord is telling you here through this passage and through Paul's example it's that sometimes in life you need to be angry. There is a problem of never being angry. There are some situations in which the Lord calls us based upon our love for him and his holiness and his truth that we must follow Paul's example. We must get angry sometimes. And there are two things that I want to specify. Two things that I think us as Christians have to get angry about. I'm still under my second point of our righteous anger. But these are two examples of where the Lord wants us to direct our anger towards. Taking the cue from Paul in Philippians 3.2. The first response, the first item that we need to be angry about is false teaching. False teaching. There are many doctrines in this world. There are many people who teach many bad doctrines that have eternal consequences. Theology matters. It matters what we believe about God. It really matters. You should be willing, dear friend, to die for good doctrine. There are religious institutions, there are cults, there are people who teach that in order to be right with God, you have to do certain things. That is a lie. That is a lie from hell. Satan loves it when that doctrine is taught. Satan rejoices. Satan claps his hands when people believe that they are saved on the basis of what they do. Dear friends, when we encounter these things, it should bother you. It should really bother you. Now, that doesn't mean that you go around telling people who believe this that they're dogs. I'm not saying that. Now, I do believe in some situations we have very harsh words for individuals, There is an occasion for that. But at minimum, what I am calling us to do, based upon this passage, is to be angry about doctrine that leads people astray. Specifically, salvation by works. I pray, dear friend, that that bothers you. That that gets you heated. That that gets you upset. That you're not okay with that. That's what we do based upon Paul's example here. We become disgusted and angry with doctrines that lead people astray. And there's a lot of hurdles that we have to overcome within evangelicalism regarding this issue. Tell me if you've heard these before. Doctrine divides, love unites. You're being judgmental, you're splitting hairs, you're ostracizing others. It is our deeds that matter, not what we believe. People can believe whatever they want. It's a free country. Who are you to say that someone else is wrong? Who's to know what correct theology is? Many well-meaning people disagree with you. Some people believe this. Some people believe that. It ultimately doesn't matter that's the intellectual culture that we're in this postmodernism no one knows the truth just be nice and love other people and it trickles into the church we are not immune from this type of thinking and and what is Paul's response to the judaizers is it you know what they're trying really hard no Paul's response is very forceful. Dear friends, we have a truth, James, excuse me, Jude 3, that we must contend for. And the only proper response sometimes to those who teach falsely is to be angry. We must get heated about false doctrine. Now I'd like to take the application a bit away from the text here. And I want to pinpoint it to a place, to a context where it's hard to be righteously angry. Maybe uniquely hard, uniquely difficult. As people, we have, very many, we have many close relationships with others. Specifically, our family members and our friends. And ministry to family and friends can be very difficult. And also, that we all have this tendency To defend those who we love most. We find it easy, very easy, to criticize those who we love most. But when other others criticize them, we get very defensive. And sometimes that's very important. We, We need to defend our loved ones. But, dear friends, I want us to be careful. I want us to be careful. There are some situations in your families where people, maybe your spouse, maybe your children, maybe your parents, maybe a cousin, maybe an aunt, maybe an uncle, maybe a very close friend. There are situations in many of your families where people are not living in accordance with God's word. And over the years, what you've done is you've just given them the benefit of the doubt. You love them. You don't want to criticize them. You want to support them and encourage them. Dear friends, sometimes in this life what people need most is a firm word from the Lord. And if you're always giving people the benefit of the doubt, if you're always defending those who you love most and you never lead on to their unrighteous behavior, you are not exhibiting this type of necessary righteous anger. Sometimes what our loved ones need most is what we do not want to tell them. And that is this, that they're dishonoring the Lord and they're walking down a path of destruction. It's very easy, dear friend, to not have this anger towards those who we most love. But what I want to call you to, based upon the word of God, is that in some situations, discretion is very important here. It's impossible to say a blanket statement, you need to do this in this situation. We need lots of wisdom. But in some situations, dear friends, we, we must be angry. And specifically in your families, if there's long, a long history of unrighteousness and hypocrisy, dear friend, it is up to you to get angry about that and to stand up for the Lord. The Lord has uniquely placed you in that person's life. And what that person might need most is a word of rebuke. Some righteous anger on your behalf. Do you do that lovingly? Of course. Do you do it gently? Yes. But dear friend, you you might need to get angry about your family's or friend's sins. I'm thankful for you all I'm thankful that we have this medium of the of the internet and live stream, and I so look forward to getting back to in person. And I pray and hope that that's soon. And dear friend, just remember this: this is the summary that where I want to leave us this morning. The Lord calls us in some situations to not be overly angry and to not be underly angry, but following Jesus is He not our example? In some situations, Jesus responded with love and gentleness. And in other situations, he responded with a firm and direct word. I pray for the Lord's guidance and direction and your discernment about how to know how to apply this. And if you have any, any questions, I would love to answer those. And I know the elders and Pastor Jesse would as well. May God bless you. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask and pray for your wisdom and understanding about when to know how we are to get angry. Father, we pray that you would kindle in us a desire for the Lord's righteousness, for your righteousness, and that would touch us so deeply that we would become angry about the right things. Father, prevent us from being overly angry and prevent us from being angry too little. Father, we ask for your Spirit's wisdom and guidance and direction as these issues can be difficult. We pray that we would model Paul and and most importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a healthy anger, Father, when we need it. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.